Good morning, everybody. Nice, nice to see you all. My name is Greg Fondell, and uh, it's a real privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you a little bit this morning. Uh, if those of you who are coming for the Live, Living Fearlessly uh, series, uh, I'm sorry to, to disappoint you. We're, we're not going to live fearlessly today. In fact, uh, in fact, I was just a little bit afraid about the whole idea of living fearlessly. So um, we're going to start in on something else, but maybe is a little bit scary uh, for folks. Uh, I'd like to talk to you today about work. Now, I can imagine that that has some of you thinking, oh boy, a message about work. Here comes a double shot of boring. But I think it actually has a chance to be relevant because a huge part of our lives is spent at work. For many of us, this past week meant getting back to work after the holiday season, uh, for students getting back into classes. And uh, that always is a little bit daunting after a little bit of a time uh, of reprieve. But I'd like us to think about how we might reimagine work. Imagine feeling good about the job that you do every day, whatever it might be. Imagine going to work with a sense of expectancy instead of dread. Imagine arriving home at the end of the day feeling satisfied. Imagine your work making you into a better person. Imagine your work deepening your faith instead of draining your soul. Imagine the work that you do making a real difference in the world and having an eternal impact on people's lives. Imagine that work is good. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Now, when I mentioned that we were going to talk about work for a little while. Some of you were probably thinking, but you don't really know what I do. How tedious, how menial, how worldly it seems. Maybe your work at times seems boring or insignificant or occasionally even ridiculous. Listen to this observation by a newspaper editor. He wrote, work is brutal. Work is a four-letter word. The problem for most people is that their work transforms them into something bad, something bitter, something broken. Do you ever feel that way? That your work is demeaning or demanding in such a way that it's turning you into somebody that you really don't want to be? Chances are we have all had feelings like that from time to time, no matter what we do for a living. Even those of us who love our work will daydream now and then about walking away from it. Well, God has a different view of work. You see, God himself is a worker. He's been working since the beginning of creation. He's working right now. He's working to sustain and redeem this fallen universe. He's working to make you into the person that he created you to be. He's working to spread good news to all people everywhere. Because work is good for God. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We're told that in the beginning, he created. And that word created means more than just bringing something out of nothing, calling the universe into existence. It actually means organizing what exists and assigning functionality to the various parts. Where there was darkness, he introduced light. Where there was chaos, he brought order. Where there was emptiness, he produced abundance. The creation of the universe required intelligence. There was a clear sense of intentionality to the work. It unfolds in a logical progression day after day with increasing complexity and purpose. Creation also required a variety of skills. We read that God spoke, God made, God set in place, God gathered. And creation also required partnership. Genesis 1.1 tells us that God the Father initiated the work. And verse 2 tells us that God the Spirit was present, hovering over the waters. And John 1.3 tells us that the God the Son was the agent through whom all things are made. All three members of the Trinity participated in the work of creation. The work of creation involved intelligence, skill, and partnership. But the job wasn't finished. God created a human being in verse 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice two things here. First, human beings were made in God's image to reflect his nature and attributes, including God's ability to work. Human beings were also given intelligence, minds that could reason and compute and imagine. Human beings were given skills and physical capacities that enabled them to work. Upright posture, opposable thumbs, five keen senses, physical strength. And human beings were also given other human beings. First, the man and the woman, and then children and siblings and relatives and neighbors. We were designed to work in the same ways that God works, with intelligence, with skill, and in partnership. Secondly, God designed human beings to carry on the work that he had begun. He expected them to increase, to expand, to subdue, and to govern the world that he had created. When God finished creating, the work still wasn't done. God rested on the seventh day, but he didn't quit. In fact, the word create shows up again and again in Scripture to describe God's continuing activity in the world on behalf of his people. God intended that men and women should work with him in extending his rule over the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2.15, we're told that this wonderful ecosystem that God created for the man and the woman 
goes like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, this garden is beautiful as it was, but it still needed work. It needed tending and cultivating. It needed expansion and diversification and protection. And God expected the man and the woman to use their intelligence, their skill, their partnership to make the garden all that it was capable of becoming. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we think about God creating the universe and particularly the Garden of Eden, and we think it was perfect. And in one sense, it was. It was everything God intended it to be in that moment. But it wasn't everything it could be. It wasn't everything it would be when his plans were fully accomplished. The world God created was good, but it wasn't done. It was perfect, but it wasn't perfected. Anybody recognize this object? Well, it's a mobile phone. And it's back from the days when we were trying to get these things smaller and smaller. And now we've given up and we just want them bigger. Now they don't fit nicely in our pockets anymore. Now we have to get a holster again. Well, do you remember when these first came out? What an amazing instrument. You could talk to people even when you weren't at home. A woman in the church that we attended was the first person that I knew who owned a mobile phone, and it was a huge walkie-talkie device. She carried it in a holster on her belt, and it had a big antenna sticking out and a curly long cord. And it looked pretty ridiculous. And you'd see her at soccer games with this big contraption, and people would wonder, Who would ever need a phone at a soccer game? Remember those days? (laughs) Well, now, you probably recognize this. This is an iPhone, but it's not just a phone, of course. It's a computer and a camera and a clock and an organizer and a TV and a music library and a gaming system and a multi-platform social networking device. The mobile phone, when it first came out, was good. It was complete. It was everything a mobile phone was capable of being at that time. But there was still more work to be done. Now, the iPhone is very good. It does far more than the original phone could do, but it's still not done. Apple announces the latest version of the iPhone every month or two. (laughs) And we can't even imagine what phones will look like or be capable of five years, ten years, a hundred years from now. Well, so it was in the Garden of Eden. It was perfect, but it wasn't perfected. There was a lot more work yet to be done. We imagine the Garden of Eden as some kind of a tropical paradise, a primitive sandals resort, where Adam and Eve sat around drinking pina coladas and watching the animals romp in the fields and trees. That wasn't it at all. They had a lot of work to do. 
those plants and shrubs needed tending and pruning so that they would produce more and better fruit. Those animals needed to be named and tamed so that they could be useful. Adam and Eve needed to procreate to bring more human beings into the world, and that was a tough job, but somebody had to do it. Those offspring needed to be cared for and nurtured and protected and educated, and somebody, somebody still had to make the pina coladas. And all of this took place before Adam and Eve sinned. We tend to think that work is the result of the curse. That's not the case at all. Human beings were working before sin came into the world. God was working before human beings needed to be saved. Creation was just phase one of his eternal plan for the universe. God intended for human beings to use their intelligence, their skill, and partnership to work alongside him to make the world everything he intended it to be. And he still does. Every Monday morning, you and I have the same opportunity to work for justice and beauty and truth and health, whatever endeavor God calls you to. When you and I work to make the life better for one person, for one organization, for one industry, for one community, we are joining God in the work that he's been doing from the very beginning the creation and expansion of a universe that will reflect his glory in ever-increasing ways for all eternity. When we work in this way, it's good for God. It's good for us too. Another way of reimagining our work is by realizing that it's good for the world. You know, I've asked a number of people over the last few years, how do you think your work affects the world? And I've heard quite a few positive, confident replies, but one particular response haunts me. This individual had a remarkable career in politics, in engineering, in construction, and law, but this was his answer. Meaningless, meaningless. My heart despairs over all my toilsome labor under the sun. All of it is meaningless and chasing after the wind. Now that man was Solomon, one of the most creative and productive workers in history. We still speak about his accomplishments 3,000 years later, and yet he felt that his work had no lasting value. And I think we all feel that at times. Does our work really matter? It's nice to know that the donut we made will make somebody happy for a few moments, but is that enough of a good reason to get up every morning? The average full-time worker will put in about 150,000 hours on the job in his or her lifetime. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you could probably double that. What we will what will you have to show for all of those hours? What difference will you have made in the world? Listen to how one man responded. For 10 years, I worked as an architect in a large firm in my city. I enjoyed my career, 
But the more I thought about it, my work seemed insignificant. For example, I helped design some office buildings in the downtown part of the city and some homes in the suburbs. But I realized that those office buildings would last 50, at most 75 years, and then they'd be torn down. And the houses that I designed would probably become the slums of the future. And I felt like I wanted to do something really lasting. So I gave up my job as an architect, and I went to seminary, and now I'm working on a mission field. And I preach the gospel, and I share truth that has eternal significance. Is that the only kind of work that matters? Do you have to quit your job to do God's work in the world? Or is it possible to find spiritual value and eternal significance in the job that you have right now? We often make this artificial distinction between sacred work and secular work, between God's work and worldly work. But the Bible tells us that all work is God's work. If it's helping people and it's helping the world to become all that he intends for them to be, Recently, I listened to a roundtable discussion from Gordon Conwell Seminary on the integration of faith and work. And Steve Garber, who is the director of a think tank called Washington Institute, he told about a friend of his who was opening a new restaurant. And as a Christ follower, he realized that he needed to start thinking theologically about selling hamburgers believing that there was a way to sell food that was honoring to God. And that insight, it affected everything about his new restaurant. Where would he get his beef? How were the cattle raised? What would be the environmental impact of his kitchen and his trash? How would the items on his menu affect the health of his customers? Who could afford to eat in this restaurant? What kind of atmosphere would he provide for his customers and his employees? How would he be a good steward of the profits from his business? Since every aspect of his work mattered to God, he should make and sell hamburgers for the glory of God and for the world and its good. Now, most of us aren't used to thinking theologically about selling widgets or building houses or designing software or crunching numbers or doing laundry. But imagine how your work does good and glorifies God. Some work is primarily knowledge-based, medicine, law, education, financial services. Other work is skills-based, carpentry, manufacturing, athletics, the culinary arts. And then there is work that involves the managing and leveraging of relationships. Sales, human resources, parenting, administration, the helping professions. I mentioned earlier about this architect who left his profession to become a missionary. And I'm not questioning his calling at all, but I am questioning his reasoning. He concluded that designing office buildings and homes had no spiritual significance and no eternal value. But if his office buildings added beauty and efficiency and prosperity to the city, then his work was significant because God wants his world to be beautiful and efficient and prosperous. 
If the houses that he designed offered safety and comfort and life together, it matters to God. The people living there have eternal value to him, and he wants them to enjoy the protection and nurture that a home can provide. The same can be said for any profession or occupation. God wants his world to be beautiful. So he inspires people to be artists and designers and beauticians and paint store owners. God wants people to be healthy. So he equips others to be physicians and nurses and trainers and therapists. And God wants children to be loved and nurtured. So he raises up parents and grandparents and coaches and den mothers and 4-H club leaders and, and, and child care workers. God wants knowledge to increase, so he recruits people to do research and design computers and to write books and to teach students. And God cares about justice, so he commissions people to be attorneys and judges and lawmakers and social workers. And God values order, so he puts managers in charge of departments and secretaries in charge of offices, and homemakers in charge of households. God wants people to live in peace and safety. So he enlists soldiers and police officers and EMTs and government officials. You get the idea. When we work to make life better for the people that God loves, for the world that he created, we are doing good work. We're doing God's work. Work is good for God. It is good for the world. And finally, it's good for the gospel. As followers of Christ, we're convinced that the gospel has the power to change any person's life for the better, both in this world and in the world to come. We genuinely care about the people that we work with and for, and we want them to know the peace and the joy and hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. And we are eager to fulfill the Lord's command to be his witnesses everywhere we go. But then along comes a coworker who tells us that he or she finds it uncomfortable and even rude when we treat the workplace as our own personal mission field. Recent legislation and court rulings have declared that proselytizing on the job is a form of harassment, calling for disciplinary action or termination. So what do we do? We want to share our faith. We don't want to offend people or get fired for it. So how do we share our faith at work in a way that's legal and appropriate and effective? How can we work in a way that's good for the gospel? The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Christians living in the city of Thessalonica, giving them practical instructions about how to live between the first and second coming of Christ. So these words still apply to us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of the outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. 
a curious bit of career counseling here. Imagine interviewing for a position in a company and the human resources manager says, where would you like to be five years from now if you were to join us? And your response is, well, my ambition is to lead a quiet life. You know, keep a low profile, nose to the grindstone, not bugging anybody. As long as I can collect a paycheck at the end of the week, I'll spend the rest of my career in a shredding room. <laughs> is that the kind of impression that you want to make? What would prompt Paul to offer this kind of advice? Well, there are a few things to consider from this passage. First, most of the Christians living in Thessalonica were Gentiles, and they were heavily influenced by Greek culture and philosophy, and the Greeks, for the most part, had a low view of labor, particularly manual labor, and Paul was addressing that bias. Secondly, the Christians in Thessalonica were in panic mode about Christ's return. They were so certain that Jesus was coming back soon and so afraid that they might miss him that some of them were neglecting their work and quitting their jobs and sitting on rooftops waiting for him to come back. And thirdly, some Christians were witnessing in such publicly disruptive ways that they were inviting persecution, making life much more difficult and dangerous for believers in all, all throughout that region. And Paul was writing to address some of these misunderstandings. He reminds the Christians of Thessalonica that work itself is a noble endeavor. When you use the strength and the skills that God has given you to be productive, to provide for your loved ones, that is right and good. That's true whether you're working with your hands or your head. Secondly, if Christ were to return suddenly, he would be just as pleased to find you selling widgets or doing laundry as he could finding you preaching on a sweet street corner. When you make a positive contribution to your company, to your customers, your campus, your community, you are doing God's work. And finally, there are times when making a public spectacle of your faith can be counterproductive for you and for the gospel. Recently, I was talking to a small business owner about faith in the workplace, and he emphatically declared that he didn't like to hire Christians. And when I asked him why not, he said that in his experience, the majority of them have a terrible work ethic. They're not productive, they expect all kinds of breaks, and they just don't seem to care about the quality of their work. He's a Christian himself. So he's not only disappointed by this, he's embarrassed. These employees undermined his efforts to share his faith with his colleagues. My friend told me about a Christian woman named Doris who took a job in his engineering firm. And Doris took her responsibility to share her faith with her coworkers very seriously. When Christmas rolled around, she got permission to host a Christmas party in one of the company's conference rooms. And she invited her pastor to come along, along with his portable sound system. And he sang and he preached so loud and long that most of Doris's co-workers complained about the distraction. And some were even quite offended. 
I dare say that if you invite Rob to come over, he wouldn't do it that way. (laughs) But after that failed attempt, she took to distributing gospel literature all through the office. They didn't go so well either because she started sending Bible verses by email to her co-workers and all kinds of somewhat threatening language about where they were going to spend eternity if they got hit by a bus. Eventually, Doris was terminated for poor performance and for misuse of company time and equipment for non-work purposes. Doris had good intentions, but she ended up alienating the people she was trying to reach. In my work as a company chaplain, I found that most of my coworkers really want to be valued and cared for and loved for who they are. But a number of them are quite uncomfortable about being viewed as targets for evangelism. I'd like to suggest that one of the most effective ways of sharing our faith at work is by doing our jobs well. If the quality of your work is so distinctive that it wins the respect of your coworkers, are you conscientious about your tasks, so skilled at what you do, so helpful to those around you that it makes them wonder, why does they, that person work the way he or she does? I believe that those kinds of habits are going to create all kinds of opportunities to speak about your faith. And when you do, people are going to be happy to listen. Randy Kilgore is the vice president of Marketplace Network, an association of business people that's interested in the integration of faith and work. And he's been asking non-believers in the workplace the same question for a number of years. And the question is, what do you want from your Christian coworkers? And these are the five most common responses. I wish my Christian coworkers knew more about their faith. When non-believers ask questions, they want to know why we believe and what we believe. I wish my Christian coworkers had more hope in hard times. When bad things happen in the world, like terrorist attacks or tsunamis, or when bad things happen in our lives, like sickness or family conflict, they want to know where to find strength and courage. I wish my Christian coworkers were more willing to talk about the hard questions of life. They don't want pat answers or religious cliches. They want to have relevant conversations about spiritual things. I wish my Christian coworkers behaved more honorably. They're disappointed when they see nothing distinctive or intriguing or consistent about the way that we live. Finally, I wish my Christian coworkers were more compassionate. Too often, we can come across as judgmental and insensitive and intolerant. And they wish that we weren't so hard on others who don't share the same beliefs. I think that's a really interesting list. I also think it's interesting for what is not on that list. They didn't say, I wish Christians would keep their religions to them, religion to themselves. 
They didn't say, I wish Christians would loosen up and party more. They didn't say, I wish Christians would bend the rules to close a deal. They want us to be true to our faith, honest about our struggles, serious about our work, and respectful of those who see things differently than we do. The good news is that Christians are often the go-to people when life gets hard and people are looking for answers. The bad news is that when they do look for us for hope and help, they're often disappointed by the shallowness of our faith or by our unwillingness to engage in real conversations. Friends, are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ? Do you know what you believe and why? Are you able to share your faith with sincerity and gentleness? Imagine how meaningful it would be if you made it your goal to work in such a way that you would win the respect of people around you. Imagine how gratifying it would be to have one of your coworkers ask you why you do your work the way you do it. Imagine how thrilling it would be to give them a confident and reasonable answer about your faith in Christ. Jesus was a magnificent worker. He was a carpenter and a teacher and a great physician. He was the architect of a new temple. He was an advocate and a judge. He was a storyteller and a childcare worker. He was a fisher of men and a foot washer. He was even a bellhop because he carried people's baggage every day. However, Jesus did his greatest work as a prisoner. He was arrested, convicted, tortured, and executed. He literally worked himself to death on our behalf. Because of Jesus' work, we can do ours with purpose and joy and hope and creativity. Our work can be good for God and good for the world and good for the gospel. And at the end of our days, we hope to receive the greatest reward when we stand before our Savior and we hear his commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Let it be so. Please pray with me. God, instill within us a proper understanding of the nature and the value of work. Encourage us in the labor that is unconcerned about the color of the collar and the passion for another dollar. Call to us and strengthen us for work, which we can do with pleasure and offer to you as worship. Work by which we can witness to the world about the importance of service to others. We pray this in the name of the carpenter from Nazareth, whose ministry began behind a workbench. In his name we pray. Amen.